Uh, good morning. It's an honor and delight to be here with all of you this morning. I have the fondest memories of my time with you from years ago, and I've been certainly looking forward to being back with you, and it's such a delight to be here. I do have to warn you people, though, that although this is my fourth time with you, the last time was in 1996, and that means it's taken the church almost 20 years to recover from that message. <laughs> so don't say I did not warn you, but it's such a delight to be here, and I sincerely appreciate the awfully kind introduction that my dear brother gave me. When you travel as a speaker, you get every introduction under the sun, but they're not always good news. Some time ago, I was speaking up in the state of Michigan for a week-long conference, and the pastor got up on opening night. What he actually wanted to say to people was, when Larry came here on Saturday, he'll be here all week, we're looking forward to that, then he'll be leaving us next Saturday. But he was a pastor who had a reputation for getting tongue-tied in the pulpit. And sure enough, he introduced me. What he said to packed house was, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. He's leaving us next Saturday, and we're looking forward to that. <laughs> so I sincerely appreciate his awfully kind introduction. But again, it's such a delight to be here with you. One of the many, many, many things I appreciate about the man you're installing as your pastor, my dear brother and someone you're going to grow to know and to love, is that he is not committed to seeing a church grow. He is committed to seeing a church grow to conversion because God does not want a church to grow through the transfer of people from one church to another. He wants it to grow through converting the lost to Christ and training them to be disciples of Christ. The Great Commission does not say go and transfer disciples. It says grow and make disciples. And your pastor is so deeply committed to seeing a church that's going to grow by conversion. And for this morning, I want to speak on a subject I've entitled Three Essentials in Your Relationships with Non-Christians. Three Essentials in Your Relationships with Non-Christians. And if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take it or follow me on the screen as I read from that portion in New Testament in the book of Colossians, chapter 4. I'd like to start reading at the second verse. Colossians 4, verse 2. I always tell people, I want you to leave knowing where God said first, while I'm only going to repeat. So when you have a Bible in front of you or watching on the screen, turn to Colossians chapter 4. I like to start reading at verse 2, Colossians 4, and beginning at the second verse. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God will open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. A pastor who ministered in a remote area of the world one time decided to give a series of messages on the subject of evangelism. And as he did, he reminded the people Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that evangelism is not done by something is done by someone. One man was so touched by his messages, he decided by the grace of God, he had to speak to a lost person about Christ. But since the area was remote and the people were few and far between, the only ones he could think of were an elderly man and his wife who lived way back in the mountains of that country. It's one of those couples that many have spoken about but few had ever spoken to. But since that that man needed Christ as badly as any man did, 
He stuck a New Testament in his pocket, a sandwich in his saddlebag, and he headed up by horseback for the elderly man's cabin. When he got there, he found the man outside cutting his supply of wood for the winter. And although the man seemed delighted to see a new face, the man had no, the Christian had no idea how to begin a conversation about Christ other than to plow right into it. And so he looked at the elderly man and said, sir, can you tell me, are you a Christian? And the elderly man said, no, I think you have the wrong cabin. Mr. Mr. Christian, they were about three miles further back in the mountains. And the believer said, no, you don't understand is, what I mean is, are you saved? And the elderly man said, saved? I'm not even lost. I've lived in these mountains for over 50 years. I know every path there is in the country. And the Christian said, no, you don't understand. What I am trying to find out is, are you ready for the judgment day? And the elderly man said, well, when's it going to be? <laughs> and the Christian was a little bit surprised by the question said, well, I don't know. I guess it could be today or it could be tomorrow. At which time the elderly man said, well, please, son, don't breathe a word to my wife because she'll want to go both days. <laughs> if you have spent any time talking to unbelievers, you have run into all kinds of problems. There are, first of all, those who show no interest in spiritual things. And as soon as you step towards the subject, they step away. Then there's still other times you talk to someone about Christ, and you're no more than five minutes in the conversation. He says, now, wait a minute. Don't talk to me about the religious stuff. My neighbor says he's a Christian, and the only hour he lives like is 11 and 12 on a Sunday morning. And I figure if that's Christianity, I'm a whole lot better off the way I am. Then there's still other times you talk to someone about Christ, it becomes obvious they're trying to make a fool out of you and treat you like you're an idiot. So you prove to them your mind is sharper and your tongue is faster. So just as they ask you questions you could not answer, they, you ask them questions they cannot answer. Just as they try to make a fool out of you, you try to make a fool out of them. And only a matter of time before you realize you have not had a discussion about Christ. You've had a full-fledged argument that demands some apologies. It's only a matter of time out of discouragement and disgust, fear and frustration. You throw your hands up in the air and you say, how in the world do you reach lost people? Well, I'm convinced in the midst of that pertinent problem, Paul the Apostle gives some very pertinent advice. Because I have to talk in caution about how to rate the people in the home. After talking to workers about how to rate the people in the job, he tells all of us how to rate the people in the street. And what he's saying is when it comes to relationships with unbelievers, there are three essentials on the part of every single one of us. And the essential he begins with is the one where we put the least emphasis and he puts the most. Because he gives three times as much space as first essential as he does the other two. Because the first thing he says is, pray properly. And notice what he says in verse two. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. What he's saying there is prayer ought to come from your life like water come on a dripping faucet. Pray when you get up and pray an hour after you're up. Pray before breakfast, pray after breakfast. Pray on your way to work, pray on your way home. Pray on your way to the grocery store, pray on your way home. Pray before bed and pray when you get up. But make it a habit to give yourself to prayer and do it in a spirit of thanksgiving. Whenever I hear the conferences from prayer, I'm always reminded of the boy who always wanted a baby brother. And his dad said, well, son, the only way to get anything is you got to ask God for it. So if you want a baby brother, you got to ask God for one. So morning, noon, and night, the boy prayed. 
He prayed before breakfast. He prayed after breakfast. He prayed his way to school. He prayed his way home. He prayed before football practice. He prayed after football practice. There was never an hour he did not pray. But after one week of praying, he still did not have his baby brother. So he said, this is obviously not doing any good. So after one week of praying, he stopped praying. Nine months later, his dad came to him and said, son, your mother's going to hospital. And I have a feeling when she comes home, she'll have God's answer to your prayers in her arms. And sure enough, the mother went to the hospital and she came home. But she did not have one baby brother arms. She had two, a beautiful set of twins. And the father wanted to drive his lesson home and I said, son, aren't you glad you prayed the way you did? And the son said, yeah, dad. <laughs> well, aren't you glad I stopped when I did? <laughs> what he is saying is, you ought to pray with the attitude, aren't you glad I stopped when I did? But I notice he's going to say one thing you ought to pray for your relationship with unbelievers, and that is a door of opportunity. And notice he said in verse 3, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God will open to us a door for the word. That phrase, a door for the word, means a door of opportunity. Now, you have to understand, when Paul wrote this paragraph, he was writing it as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, handcuffed the Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And there's no doubt in my mind, Paul the Apostle had the chance to share Christ in prison. I promise you, if I was an unsaved Roman guard, the last thing I would want is to be chained to Paul the Apostle for 24 hours a day. I could see him looking at me and saying, look, since the two of us have a chance to do some bonding, may I ask you a question I've asked other people I've been chained to? At the same time, he does not want to be limited to walls of prison. So thinking of himself and all of his associates, he says, pray that God will give a door of opportunity. He even says in verse 4, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul wanted to make it manifest to the entire world that Christ alone was the only way to heaven. So he said, pray that God will give a door of opportunity. And the first thing he says is, pray properly. And when someone comes to me and they say, we want so much to talk to so-and-so about Christ, but the opportunity is never there. Well, the first thing I ask him is, have you asked God to give you a door of opportunity? You need to pray properly. We have a son who's now 32 years old, but when he was about five or six years old, he decided if his dad was going to be an evangelist, then he would be one too. And besides that, he is a people person who has never met a stranger, and besides that, he is very intelligent. No, I can say that, and nobody can accuse me of bragging, because our son is adopted. In fact, some friends of ours said some time ago, your son is so intelligent, you can tell he's adopted. <laughs> but for that reason, <laughs> he'd walk up to anyone, anywhere, and say, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? That's where he would start. He'd walk up to anyone, anywhere, and say, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? It's amazing how that opens conversation right up to spiritual things. At one time, my wife, he were in a hardware store. He runs up to the counter. He says, what are you depending on to get you to heaven? Man was surprised how abruptly the question came up. He said, well, I go to church. I live good. I try to do what's right. And David looked at my wife and he said, he ain't going to make it. <laughs> at that point, my wife had a door of opportunity. But I tell people, sometimes when you pray for that door of opportunity, you have to realize that door might come a lot quicker than you ever thought it would. One time my wife and he were visiting the neighborhood right behind us. 
And David whispered to my wife, is she a Christian? And my wife whispered back, Daddy and I don't know. We've been asking God to give us an opportunity to find out. David decided this was his door of opportunity. <laughs> and so he looked at her and he said, what are you depending on to get to the heaven? And she said, well, uh, Jesus Christ. He said, Christ plus works for Christ alone. <laughs> and she looked at him and she said, would you please explain what it means to be born again? And Tammy led her to Jesus. He's saying, pray properly. Ask God to give you a door of opportunity. Pray properly. But sometimes what hinders us our relationship with non-Christians is the life we live around them. Nietzsche, who was famous years ago for saying God is dead, one time said, show me first that you are redeemed, and then I'll listen to you talk about your Redeemer. And one reason there are so many callous sinners is there are too many careless saints. So therefore, having said pray properly, the second thing he says is live properly. And notice what he says there in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards those that are outside, redeeming the time. Now, by the term walk, he's not referring to the way you walk to the breakfast table, but the way you walk from breakfast table to breakfast table, your entire manner of living. What he's saying is walk in wisdom. That means common good sense, the kind God gives to all those who walk closely with him. I like to use the illustration of the man who lived at the top of a high mountain. And the only way to top that high mountain was by means of horses and stagecoach. And the man needed a driver for a stagecoach. And so he put an ad in the paper and three different men applied. The man decided to find out who he should hire. He'd had every one of them to drive that stagecoach to the top of the mountain. Well, at one point in the road, there was an awfully tight spot with a cliff on the one hand and a high wall rock on the other. As the first man got that spot, he thought, if I'm going to get the job, I've got to prove I can handle the horses right close to the edge of that cliff. And he brought them within two feet of the edge of that cliff. Second man came along and said, if I'm going to get the job, I have to prove I can do better than the first one. So he brought the horses within one foot of the edge of that cliff. Third man came along, he looked at the tight spot and he said, job or no job. There's no way I'm taking those horses close to that edge. That is not very wise. After all three had competed, the one doing the hiring to the third man, he said, it's my opinion, what I need most in a stagecoach driver is wisdom. You've proven you have it, and you have the job. He says, walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord. He then says in verse 5, redeeming the time. That word redeeming the time means buying up the opportunity. Look at moments of your life to live around unsaved people in such a way that will drive them close to the cross, not away from it. That your life ought to always be a help to your message. It ought never be a hindrance. He's saying walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord, buying up every opportunity to influence them to Christ. He is saying live properly. Napoleon one time made the comment, that the reason he beat the Austrians is because they never learned the value of five minutes. Paul is saying, learn the value of five minutes. Live around unsaved people in such a way they'll drive them close across instead of away from it. Walk in common good sense for those that don't know the Lord, buying up every opportunity. He's saying, live properly.
As you can imagine, I do a tremendous amount of flying. And I've found that airplanes are great opportunities to witness. I've also found the rougher the flight, the better the opportunity. <laughs> but a number of years ago, I was coming back from the state of Mississippi. I was in what was then Republic Airlines. The fellow next to me worked for Republic Airlines. And so I turned the conversation to spiritual things. I said to him, has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure going to heaven? He said, no, they haven't. I said, may I? He said, no. I said, well, I appreciate your honesty. Had I shown it to you from the Bible, I would have shown you, first of all, you have to know you're a sinner. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I talked for him for 40 minutes. After I was done, I said to him, uh, you did not mind me talking about it, but did not want me to show it to you why. He took a big sigh and he said, years ago I met a Christian who was a hypocrite. So I threw out the whole thing. I said, I want to ask you something. You work for Republic Airlines, right? He said, that's right. I said, this is a Republic flight, right? He said, that's right. I said, you know why I took it? He said, no, why? I said, well, one reason was they have fit my schedule. But the second reason is they have given me good service. In fact, they have given me such good service. If I met one of your employees who did not, I would not throw out the airlines. And I don't think you have any business without Christ. Because you met one God in the life. He said, that's a powerful thought. I promise you, I'll start thinking seriously about Christ. Now, he did not have any business throughout Christ because the one God did not live the life. But neither did we not have any business not living around unsaved people in such a way they're all drawn close to the cross instead of away from it. He's saying, walk in common good sense towards those that don't know the Lord. Buying up every opportunity to listen for Christ, he's saying, live properly. One time a man who was for years agonistic to Christ then came to know him, and he attributed his conversion to a neighbor who was awfully timid. And one day the neighbor said to him, I'm really surprised. I did not even speak to you about Christ the way I should have. And the new convert said, no, you didn't, but you lived me to death. I could refute their argument. I could upset their logic. I could not refute the way you lived. He's saying, live properly. But then he's only mentioned a third essential. Because sometimes what hinders us, our relationship with unbelievers, is the way we use our tongue. Socrates one time said to one of his pupils, I've got to teach you two sciences. The one is how to use your tongue. The other is how to hold it. If you're going to be affected with angelism, you have to know how to use your tongue. But you also better know how to hold it. So having said, pray properly and live properly, he then says, speak properly. And look what he said in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now that word grace means that I have a graciousness about it, that I have a pleasantness about it. One time a woman went to see a doctor. The doctor wanted to know if she had gone to see anyone else before coming to see him. And she said, no, but I did go to see my pharmacist. And the doctor said, and what kind of stupid advice did he give you? She said, he told me to come see you. 
Now we laugh, but sometimes our speech is characterized by that kind of sarcasm, that kind of terseness. He said, let it have a gracious about it. And then he said, let it be seasoned with salt. There's no doubt in my mind the reason Paul thought that analogy is that close to Colossae, there was a salt lake. And salt, as it's used in the Bible, has a twofold purpose. On the one hand, it creates an appetite because it makes something tasty. On the other hand, it acts as a preservative and renders something wholesome. So what he is saying is, cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, that does not mean you cannot be direct where you have to be direct. You cannot confront where you have to confront. If you know anything about heavyweight fighter Muhammad Ali, then you know he has never, ever struggled with his self-image. He's convinced it's hard to be humble when you're so great. And one time he's on a plane flight, as the plane was about to take off, the flight attendant said, please buckle your seatbelt. He looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane, buckle up. <laughs> Sometimes you got to be direct. <laughs> what he's saying is, though, there's never a cause to be harsh. There's never a need to be sarcastic. There's never a call to be rude. Instead, cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's saying your speech is like your life or look like salt in a person's life. It ought to give them an appetite for God and ought to strike them as being wholesome. We have a phrase today that's kind of known throughout the world. And it goes like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Paul is saying, no, they may not hurt you, but they may hurt the person to whom you're speaking and the cause you represent. So you're far wiser to choose what you say instead of saying what you choose. Maybe your, their speech will reveal that they're bitter against God because of something that happened in the past. Maybe their speech will reveal there's something in the Bible they have completely misunderstood. Maybe their speech will reveal they've been turned off by the hypocrisy of another believer. He's saying it doesn't matter. Cultivate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's saying speak properly. And notice Paul's emphasis is, this is the way you ought to speak all the time. Because you do not change the way you talk when unsafe people come around. Instead, the way you talk to people in general is the way you talk to lost people in particular. And that's why he says in verse 5, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Because the way you speak to people in general with the way you talk to lost people in particular. So could I ask you, what kind of reputation does your tongue have? Does it strike them as being terse? Or does it strike them as being tender? Well, my favorite verse in the Bible, in John 1, 14, where it says that Christ was full of grace and truth. 
and in traveling for 42 years evangelist, I have found there are those Christians who have grace, but they have no truth. But I have been just as burdened by those Christians I've met who have truth, but they have no grace. And Paul is saying, correlate the gift of pleasant, wholesome conversation, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's saying, speak properly. One time was a pastor community who spoke to his neighbors about Christ. But every time he did, neighbors responded in words that were both sarcastic and rude. True story. A few months later, the pastor's son became ill, what turned out to be a terminal disease. And a few months later, the son died. Although it might sound hard to believe, one month after the son died, the neighbor walked in the pastor's house and said to him, Well, where's your God now? Pastor looked at them very calmly, very gently, very gracefully said, the same place he was when he lost his son. He's saying, cultivate the gift of pleasant host conversation that you may know how to answer each one. Paul is saying there are three essentials a relationship with unbelievers. You need to pray properly. You need to live properly. You need to speak properly. Someone has made the comment, the obvious is never the obvious. So someone says it ever so simply. And Paul makes what should be obvious even more obvious by saying it ever so simply. In our relationship with unbelievers, we must pray properly, live properly, and speak properly. I tell people, don't think just because I've been privileged to be an evangelist for 42 years, I know everything there is about evangelism. That could not be further from the truth. But I do know, if we're going to impact the lost, if you're going to impact the Bahamas for Christ, you got to pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If someone asked one of us, what are the essential relationships with unbelievers? We'd write about three volumes and say nothing. But Paul takes six words and says it all. Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. There are three essential in relationship to unbelievers. What are those same with me? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. What are the three essential in relationship to unbelievers? They are pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If you're going to impact the Bahamas for Christ, what do you got to do? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. What are the three essential relationships for the unbelievers? They are pray properly, live properly, speak properly. If you're going to impact your community for Christ, what do you got to do? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. God's given me two spiritual gifts. The one's evangelism, the other's repetition. <laughs> what are the three essential relationships for the unbelievers? They are... Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. God wants the church to grow through conversion. God wants you to make a difference in the Bahamas. 
God wants you to populate heaven for Christ. What's it going to take? Just go back to the manual. And what's he say you got to do? Pray properly, live properly, speak properly. Years ago, there was an evangelist speaking in the western part of the U.S. In a community-wide crusade, so many were coming to Christ. One woman who was a believer attended with her two unsafe sons who showed no interest in spiritual things. So one day she said to them, I'd like to know why so many are coming to Christ and my sons have no interest of any kind. So he proceeded to ask her a few questions. He said, have you asked God to give you a chance to speak to him? And she confessed that not only has she not done that, but even harder an attitude, even God could not save them. And he said, well, have you tried to live and talk around them in such a way? Would commend the Savior to them. She confessed that not only did she not do that, but she was very bitter against them, causing things they had done to her. And so God gave him the integrity and the courage to say, well, could I suggest the reason your sons are unsaved is probably because of you. That comment went through her ear down to her heart. She decided to do something about it. So she began to pray that God would give her a chance to speak to them about the good news of Jesus. And then she lived and talked and acted around them in such a way that would make the Savior attractive to them. Some months later, she came downstairs, and they seemed a bit more quiet than usual as they sat around the breakfast table, a bit more open than usual. So she called me and said to them, I did not sleep that well last night, and I don't think I ever will. Do I know that we will all be together in heaven? That's what I want more than anything else on earth. That comment went through their ears, down to their hearts. And we just a few weeks later, both of them came to the Savior. Now, that's not to say wherever there's unsaved children. It's because a parent did not live for Christ. That is not true. But it is the same. In our relationship with unbelievers, we must what? Pray properly. Live properly, speak properly. I beg you as your brother in Christ, as you began a fantastic years of ministry under my beloved brother, and more important, under our tremendous Savior, pray properly, live properly, speak properly. And the church will make an eternal difference in the Bahamas. Not because I said so, but because God says so. And all God's people ought to say, Amen. Let's pray together. This morning, as our heads around our eyes are closed, we look forward to the inauguration service this afternoon. We should do it with a great deal of excitement. God has spoken to us. I have a moment of quietness. Would you speak to him? First of all, pray for an opportunity to speak to somebody you know this week. You might mention to God somebody has in mind you have in mind because God's heart's more burdened than yours is. 
pray for a door of opportunity. Then take a moment and look at your life. Would someone say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, tell me more? Or would they say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, tell me less? Is your life attracting people to Christ? Are there areas of sin you've still not dealt with? What about your speech? What kind of reputation does your tongue have? Does it have all grace, no truth? Or does it have all truth, no grace? What kind of reputation does your tongue have? Whatever is going to be different after this morning, as we pause for a few moments of silence, tell God right now. Our gracious Father, because we don't love the way you do, so many times we'll ask something, we muddle the message, we beat around the bush. But you loving so deeply, you speak so directly. And you tell us our relationship with unbelievers. You got to pray properly, you have to live properly, you have to speak properly. And person after person, and church after church who has done that has made an eternal impact upon the lost. Lord, I pray that you might give my brothers and sisters doors of opportunity, even this week, to tell somebody out there, Christ died for you. I pray you might help us live in such a way that we look at our moments of our life as doors of moments of opportunity. Live in a way that would attract the lost to you. We pray, Lord, you might help us to speak well. That our tongue might always be characterized by grace and truth. May it be noted for being tender, not for being cursed. Lord, I pray for the church I have loved for years that you might cause it to make an impact upon the community that is greater than they ever anticipated could be made. It might be a God-directed church. And I pray for even anyone here who's never met you. They might understand the simple gospel. We come to God's sinners, recognize Christ died for us rose, and trust in him alone as we're on the way to heaven. Because eternal life is free. And I pray if they don't have that settled, they might not leave this auditorium before seeing Pastoriality or me and allowing us to talk for a few moments. Because there's nothing better than knowing we're going to heaven. There's nothing worse than not knowing. We look forward to a great deal of excitement of what you're going to do. In the awesome name of Jesus Christ, we ask it with thanksgiving. Amen.